When I work with individuals and we do some of the family of origin work, if they do have aging parents, it can be difficult, right? And I just always talk about your parents. Of course, they were doing the best they could in that moment and some things just didn't land for you or you gained a worldview and that's all we're learning about is just you, the finding you moment. And so that's where I really try to frame that kind of family of origin, especially when there's aging parents, when you just want to connect with them and spend time Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. All right, friends, today, Lindsay and I are deep diving into the topic of family. For many of us, even those of us who may consider ourselves in quote-unquote healthy families, family is complicated. And in a time of political division and social unrest, it seems like the divides in our families and close communities are only growing. So we brought in therapist and on-site guide Crystal Nero to talk about one of her specialties, the family system. At OnSite, Crystal leads many of our family and group intensives. She helps guide groups through a healing process together where open communication can help create a path for connection, growth, and healing. I asked her all of my questions because honestly, that process seems a little intimidating. Uh, Together, the three of us explore how our families of origins and our earliest messages impact our relationships today, how to show up for the people in our lives and in the process ourselves, and we even touch on why we act like our 17-year-old selves when we go back home for the holidays. I took a ton of notes, and I was so grateful for this conversation with Crystal. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Crystal Nero, one of our incredible on-site guides. And Crystal, I just am excited for our audience to get to know you and for Lindsay and I to get to know you a little bit better today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we often talk on the podcast and in general, we talk to therapists that no one gets into this line of work uh, by accident. I think there's usually a calling or a purpose behind it. And so I would just love to hear like, what kind of called you into the therapeutic realm and how did you get here? Absolutely. So originally, once upon a time, I was a nuclear medicine technologist. Oh, what? (laughs) What does that mean? Nuclear medicine technologist. Yes. So all it means is physiology of organs. And so you tested. um, So specifically, I worked with oncology patients before chemo, during chemo, after chemo. And it was to see if their organs were sustaining through the, through the process. So what happened for me during those 10 years is one, I needed to get out of radiation. Um, I was kind of done working with radiation. And then two, really getting to know the individuals and their family in a very, very difficult time in a super uncertain time. So lots of fear lots of uncertainty. And then they would end chemo and then they would kind of be done with me. And I just found myself wanting more of that relational experience, wanting to be able to help individuals, systems specifically that are struggling and have a lot of uncertainty. And so when you say systems, I know that's kind of where we're going to land and talk a little bit today. But what do you mean by that? Like the family system, their full support system? 
Yes, all of it for sure. And and specifically the family system, I think there's a struggle there. There's a need to want to help. There is some difficulty with knowing how to help. Um, There are some rubs with like old relational patterns that are in the mix that really get heightened when we're in distress. And so for me, I think what I saw a lot of times specifically in that process was loved ones sitting in the waiting room not having any clue how to help the individual Mm. that was undergoing the chemo or undergoing the test. And so they were also lost in the process. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a season where I know so many people that are sick and suffering. And I don't know if it just feels bigger right now or I'm more aware of it or, you know, if it it just feels like sometimes that happens. Like, all at once, yes. <laughs> uh, we kind of become aware of uh, a lot of people that are hurting um, physically. And I'd love to know sort of what are some like tangible ways that I can do a better job of, I, I feel like I have a tendency sometimes to withdraw or to try to give them space or room or, you know, or to say the right thing. And a lot of times I feel like my instincts are just off about what people actually want and need and how to really be there for them. So what would your advice or words of wisdom be to someone like me? That's a great question. So first and foremost, I think identifying for ourselves that we feel helpless in those scenarios. And I think that is what gets lost is we don't identify what's happening with us first. We go right to, I want to help. I want to do this. Here's something I can do, but recognizing that we're, fearful that we're feeling helpless and that this is a really uncertain time. So first and foremost, checking in with yourself and what's happening. And then I would say, do the thing or do something as opposed to always asking the individual what they need. Odds are they they don't know. And then there comes some pressure with that, right? For them to decide what you can do for them. So my recommendation is do the thing. That maybe you want to do. Yeah, that's good. I remember when uh, we were doing our training trauma podcast limited series, we talked a lot about like how to show up and how to support someone who is struggling with the effects of unresolved trauma. And the therapist on the podcast talked about how we treat mental illness and depression and trauma and all the things that kind of come with that differently than we would treat someone who might be walking through chemo, who might be walking through uh a physical health scare and kind of saying the way that we show up for people who are walking through a physical health problem is the same way that we can show up for someone who's walking through a hard mental health season. And that was just an incredible reframe for me because I think I also feel helpless when I've got friends who are really struggling with their mental health and I don't know how to show up. You know, we get really good about creating meal trains for people and taking them to appointments and all of that. And how does it look like to extend that even farther? and prioritize that. So what would be your advice even if someone's struggling with Mm -hmm. mental health? Yeah, I think sitting with them, um, allowing them to be seen and heard, right? I don't have the answers and I can be with you in this, right? In the uncomfortable, in the discomfort. You might not know and I might not know and I'm not leaving, right? So I think that's the piece that comes up. We don't know what to do. So we do, Lindsay, like you say, withdraw a little bit. Like, I don't know what the heck to do. So I'm going to do nothing, which could really cause that kind of like abandonment stuff to come up in the individual. That's good. And how often do we feel like with someone struggling with their mental health that we should have a solution, right? Like, oh, I should know how to show up for you. 
But we don't, if someone's struggling with the health problem, you know, we help them find experts and specialists. That's really interesting. Yes. And that, that fix it, right. Really kind of is a barrier, quite honestly. Right. Because then it's something is wrong with you and this is how we make it better. And really we just need to be seen and heard often. Mm. And so how did your experience um, kind of working with these families then translate into becoming a therapist and doing some of the other things and ways of doing therapy in different contexts that I know you've done? So originally I was like, okay, I'm going back to school. I'm going to do health psychology and this is what I'm going to put my stamp on the world. So I went back to school and I found myself in the addictions path (laughs) as opposed to health psychology. So the world tells us we need to know when we don't know it. And then I would say for me, my biggest driving force was people who are struggling, whether mentally, physically, emotionally, how can we show up for them and create just like a different experience? And so that led me then to work in the prison system, um, community mental health, and then eventually wilderness therapy and private practice. So many cool things that you've done. I've done a few cool things. (laughs) How did you get connected with OnSite and uh, what have you enjoyed about sort of the work that you get to do with us? Yeah, so I got connected with OnSite from a mentor that I had in North Carolina that kept saying, like, you need to go be a guide at OnSite. You need to be go, go be a guide at OnSite. And I just thought, who has time to be a guide at OnSite? <laughs> and then I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm a wilderness therapist right now. There is no time for that. And then I came for a training and I was like, oh, I need to be a guide mm-hmm. at OnSite. Um, and so, <laughs> as you know, the campus holds, I think, some very sacred space. And just being there was phenomenal for me personally. And then I just did the things that you need to do to guide it on site. And I have loved every single minute of it. It always feels like an honor. I just am coming off of a family intensive. Mm. And so I'm having that sweetness with me this week for sure. Yeah. I think it is really just like the immersion of the relationship for the intensive time and just really being able to see and hear the whole system, everybody getting a voice and not having an identified patient. I think lots of times with family therapy, something that could happen is there is a client that is struggling and then we bring the family in as opposed to here is a system that is struggling and then how do we help them learn their struggle and navigate moving forward. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, like the idea of doing a family intensive is like, sounds probably terrifying. And my eyes just got wide. The the best thing ever at the same time. And I'd be curious is from like your point of view as one of our guides that has led and facilitated them, what sort of gets a family to a family intensive point? And like, who do they best serve? Yeah. I love that, that you kind of called out that it's not, you know, they really come together as a collective. It's not like, hey, well, maybe some people come in in thinking there's one specific family member that's the problem. 
Um, but as we, as we all would tend to think, oh, it's not us. It's somebody else that we're here to work on. But then how does that change when they're here? And how do they begin to see the potential of sort of changing together as a unit? Yes. I have never had a family intensive where at the end they haven't said, we came in with this and we're leaving with this. So we have this thought frame, right? And we have this kind of conceptualization for ourselves of who needed to do their work. (laughs) And it turns out we we all need to do our work. And so I think the shift there is just the beauty of the room and the time frame that we have to actually hone in on everybody and to give everybody a space to learn and to grow and to speak their truth and to hold that truth, right? Without it being bad, without it being destructive, without it being the problem. And so they get an experience in the room and then also outside of the room. I think one of the beauties of onsite is the community, right? Even when you're outside of the actual intensive room that you came to do, there's so many gifts just on the campus that happen throughout the weekend. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, I, I've done group work at onsite and I feel like one of the gifts of the community, like you're talking about, is you kind of begin to like try out these new habits that you're learning about and like try out the new way of being. And that then when you go home to people that don't know the language or aren't aware of the work that you've been doing, it, it that's a little harder. And so it's just cool to imagine doing some work like that with your family where you're like actually practicing the new way of being with them that's right. And that you'll go home and you can try the new way of being together sort of in a different environment eventually. But it That's feels right. like it would be a great step in. Absolutely. So in lifetime, right? So things are coming up in lifetime. We're slowing it down. We're holding pace. They're not doing their normal cycle. So that is disrupted. And then they have an experience to do something different. Well, sign me up. <laughs> Lindsay, you brought a really positive spin to it. I was thinking I would feel way more comfortable being in a group process with strangers than I think I would with my family. And I love my family, but it just feels like such a vulnerable place. And so how do you curate that space so that people can be vulnerable? Mackenzie, you know the best work happens when you're a little uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Oh, I know. And I mean, I was uncomfortable with strangers too, but I just think getting all the personalities in one room, what does that look like in the room to invite every voice to the table? Yeah, I think originally it is a group process, me included. Right. So I then become part of the system and I'm in in the relationships with them. So what I try to kind of cultivate in the room initially is what are we here in hopes of? And so then I have an anchor throughout the weekend to weave that through. And we're always going back to what, what that intention is. And so intention setting, what are we individually hoping to get from this? And then collectively, what are we hoping to get from this? And so if we can remind ourselves why we're here, right? And we could be reflected in that, why we're here, why we actually chose this. Because when we're really uncomfortable and the distress is coming, we forget how much we wanted to be here on Thursday. (laughs) So on Saturday, we're like, this was a really bad idea. (laughs) And so for me, right, it's that co-regulation of reflection, why each of them are individually here. I watched a Gabor Matej clip 
that was shared on social media yesterday about sort of the idea that even if we have a sibling, we have different parents because they were different in different seasons when they were having us. Our position and birth order affects that. Every There are so many factors affecting like our experience as a child with our caregivers that it was just like really kind of mind blowing. And I, a lot of the, what I've realized post doing the Living Center program and looking a little bit at my family of origin work was how different my sister and I's experience was with our parents. She is five years, but like six grades older. And so she was like kind of off into the world for a lot of my like formative years. And it just is so interesting that you think, oh, that this is a sibling. They had the same experience I did, but they really don't. You know, they have a totally unique, different experience. And just hearing you talk about the systems reminds reminded me of that. And I think even for my sister and I to begin to create conversation around our individual experience, because there are so many assumptions that we made about how our parents were with them, assuming that they were the same way they were with us. And it was totally different, you know? Um, and, and that beginning to have the expanded awareness of sort of the things that shaped and formed her is helps me in my relationship with her more than I realized, you know, and then even to be able to bring our parents into that conversation and ask about, you know, like what was going on in the season? It felt like, you know, there were other external factors that I wasn't aware of. And I think that what I've loved around some of the family of origin work I've done and be able to look at our family system is it begins to like create more grace and understanding and it begins to like remove the misperceptions or assumptions that I had sort of wrongly made as a child about things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you you say the word assumption. I think that is the biggest thing when it comes to families. At some point we stop talking. (laughs) right? And Mm. not that we don't converse or we don't dialogue. It's that we know the rhythm. And so we no longer check in. And reality is the rhythm has actually changed. We just haven't talked about it or acknowledged it or we're unaware of it. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. So with that in mind, um, I will just use this for my own personal knowledge. I have a two-year-old, and I'm about to uh, give birth in January to another child, and I am really feeling a lot of angst and internal turmoil based on my own family system and based on my brother and I are six years apart, and so we were, like you were saying, raised in two very different households, and I think I've always established that, but I also, we jokingly say, like, he's had some resentment because he was by himself for a long time. You know, he was like, everything was perfect and then you came along. Um, So how do you show up consistently and well with more than one child in the home so that you're creating consistent experiences, but also honoring where you are and honoring who your child is? I know that's a really big question, but just tell me how I should be parenting, Crystal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I think the most important thing you said, Mackenzie, was who is your child? Right. And, and mm. therein lies the most important piece of it. And so what does 
what are some things I know that that specific child might need? So connection for us could look one way or quality time for us can look one way. It doesn't mean that that individual child is receiving it that way. I have two adult boys and the way that they want to interact, the way that they like to interact is very different. And so my way to interact feels good and it's the right way. <laughs> so some, sometimes my little guy, who's 22, not little anymore, but he's my little guy, um, I had to learn, right, what actually felt good for him. And I continue to check in. And we have had work together that now he could be like, you're doing the thing. And I'm like, yes, I'm doing the thing. So I tend to ask him a lot of questions which can look like an interrogation because he doesn't share a lot. And so really he wants something different. The questions aren't as helpful for him or as connected for him. Mm, That's really good. And I would imagine that with siblings, like you were saying, there's so many assumptions. And as we walk through that, like your experience wasn't their experience. And even if you had a very similar experience, we all view the world differently. And so how have you and your work helped people to make sense of those differing perspectives and make sense of the way that maybe they experience something and still find connection in the midst of that? Yeah. So I think in the therapeutic room, it is, I'm going to say the word easier. I don't know if that's the word I want to use, but we're not in the exact conflict. So we can hear things and receive things a little bit differently. And so things that have maybe been said 20 times outside of the room doesn't mean everybody heard it. And so it is that process of safety in that moment. I feel safe in this moment. Therefore, I am hearing so much more than when we are escalated and when we are in the conflict and I have a lot of my own stuff going on and I can't actually hear it. So sometimes it's not necessarily new stuff. We're just hearing it differently. Mm. For people that might never get their whole family to do like an intensive together or to a therapy room together, what are ways that we can begin to like see each other more honestly and like begin to like heal family systems around the dinner table? Absolutely. So I think first and foremost, the phrase, do your own work, (laughs) check in with yourself. Um, Some of those buzz phrases, what feels so important to me is, am I even aware of my own experience? Am I aware of how I'm showing up? What am I bringing to this interaction, to the dinner table, to Thanksgiving? I'll speak for me personally. That is still work that I do with my parents, right? When they are there as an only child, as a girl, like I show up in a certain way, literally when my parents step foot in North Carolina. And so my awareness around that and then some compassion for myself with, yeah, I have some stuff that I bring to the table. And then I, and then I would say curiosity, number one. So anytime you can make a statement, you can also ask a question. And so lots of times we make statements mm. and we can just reframe that into a question to be able to check it out. Yeah, I love that. Hey friends, has this conversation with Crystal piqued your interest in a family intensive? You don't have to settle for unhealthy dynamics in your most important relationships. In a family intensive, your family will examine their unique dynamics and begin to address core issues. 
Many families benefit from the extended time away from their day-to-day life to really find the connection, understanding, and intimacy that they desire. Guided by world-class therapists, these intensives will help you resolve ongoing issues, deepen your capacity to trust one another, and build an effective support system. Learn more at onsiteworkshops.com or give us a call at 1-800-341-7432 to determine if a group or family intensive might be right for you. One of the other conversations I've been having with like some friends that are in a younger season than I am is like, you know, they're kind of in the season in their 20s and 30s of like creating boundaries with their parents and like trying to really begin to self-actualize and undo some of the unhealthy patterns from their childhood and stuff like that. And I'm a little bit older. I'm in my mid 40s and my parents are in their 70s, late 70s and 80s. And so I'm sort of in a period of just trying to appreciate my time with them, you know, and it's like, I've kind of, I I definitely went through that season of, of sort of trying to like be myself and feel seen and heard and valued for being myself and all of that. But in this season, I sort of feel like I've let down sort of a little bit of the fight and it's just been more of an appreciation That's beautiful. And just because of the timing of it, you know, it's like awareness of the season that I'm in and how a lot of their friends are aging. And I have a young child that I'm, it's like just really special to be able to see them connect. I don't even think it's like my growth as much as it's just seasonal. And I wondered as you like see patterns in like how we relate differently kind of in different sort of seasons of life with our parents, you know, and what some of those themes are as we get older. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also more acceptance of just who our parents are as humans, right? So we, as we get older, have so much more life experience and start to recognize we don't have it all right either. So I think in those younger years, we're in, we're in the, we got it right. We have it all figured out. And then that starts to subside a little bit. We're like, we still, we still don't know what we're doing. (laughs) And my parents were trying so hard. I think sometimes when I work with individuals and we do some of the family of origin work, if they do have aging parents, it can be difficult, right? And I just always talk about your parents. Of course, they were doing the best they could in that moment and some things just didn't land for you or you gained a worldview and that's all we're learning about is just you, the finding you moment. And so that's where I really try to frame that kind of family of origin, especially when there's aging parents, when you just want to connect with them and spend time with them. It's not that they're bad, right? We're just finding you. Right. right. I love that. And I, I think from my, like, it's developmentally appropriate for us to separate. And I have been noticing, you know, in the season of my life, like coming back closer to my family and recognizing them for all the beauty and the gift that they are. When I, you know, took that season to really separate, I think having a child has been a big part of that. I'm just recognizing that she is a part of their story and how do I invite them in to that. But I wonder for those of us who say like, okay, that sounds great. Your parents sound safe and there was, you know, you're just self-actualizing, you're setting boundaries. But how do we determine when like maybe a relationship, there is a lot of hurt. There might even be trauma, there might be betrayal, and there might be toxicity and not safety. So how do you determine that and and encourage people um, that may be seeing you and saying, hey, I'm a part of this family system that feels toxic and I want to find health 
how do I set boundaries? Yeah. So I think it's, it's first gaining some clarity around what, what you personally want. So I do have some, some clients who come in and say, I am never leaving my family board. Like I'm not going to separate in this way. And how might I have some conversations? How might I lean into this work? Knowing that they're not going to go to family intensive, but how might I do this? And so I do think it's an individual choice. Yeah. Be a part of that. Yeah. A process. And I think that process is long, right? It's not a short process. It's not like today I'm mad and I'm not going to talk to my parents or, um, I'm aware of this trauma and also how do I want to work through it? How do I want to heal from it? And sometimes that is maybe leaving the system and sometimes it's not. So I think um, individually that's a, that's a navigation process. And so again, that would be the individual work first. It's good. I love that. And I love um, something that I've learned is that boundaries are not forever. They can be tested. You can come back. You can, you know, see, are we still, do my boundaries still need to maintain where they are? Can I flex back a little bit? Do I need to make them more strict? Family's just so complicated. I think this whole conversation, I have so many questions going through my head. Like I've been on feeling really emotional just even having this conversation. It it activates something in us. You mentioned earlier that there's something that happens in you when your parents physically step into North Carolina. And so I wondered, it has been some of my own personal experience and work that I've done, that you kind of, we joke in our house and we call it revertigo. Like, I'm, I've done a lot of work, but I get around my family and I show up in this, this way that I don't want to show up, right? Or I show up as my 17-year-old self, <laughs> yeah. or maybe my family is putting the 17-year-old version on me as a 30-year-old evolved, whatever. Um, so is that a thing? And I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I love that you came back because I wanted to go back to this as well because I think so many times around the dinner table or a holiday or we're all together and you hear comments like, oh, that's just so-and-so or so-and-so always does this. And for me, I want to get curious about that. That's an assumption that we have or it was that way at some point and might be yeah. different and I'm holding on to that. So for me in in my work, I think specifically being an only child and my parents do desperately want to please me. So when they come to North Carolina, it's a lot of crystals in charge making all the decisions and I start to get a little decision fatigue. Right? I'm like, I'm yeah. hard. what do you all want to eat? Um, so I think for me, I just have to recognize that. And sometimes I do have to set boundaries surrounding, I can't make all the decisions. Could you all pick something for two days that we're going to do? So a hundred percent, that is true. They also I guarantee still see me as a a young person, not necessarily the adult that I am. I think they're very proud of me and what I've accomplished, but there are times like when we're all together, it's kind of like, oh, the only child and Crystal, the kid, the rebellious kid, no less. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think you even said it, you kind of, you caught yourself, but you were like, my little guy, well, he's 22 and I have to do, I have to love him differently. Like you, you even caught yourself in that. So 100%, I that's, that's right. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is the wilderness therapy that you've done. And you mentioned too, like an onsite, I think what the sort of healing nature of our campus itself in Cumberland Furnace. I would love to hear just about what sort of is your relationship with outdoors and how have you seen it be a healing mechanism for other people? 
Yes. So personally for myself, I specifically moved to the mountains. Um, So born and raised in Chicago and just knew that wasn't a good fit for me anymore. Um, The fast pace, it's hard living as far as I was concerned. And when I moved to Asheville, what I will say is it's better than I ever expected. And I think I didn't really have an understanding of exactly what nature can gift us and how grounding and quiet and steady it is ever present. Um, And I think ultimately when I think about families or even individuals, the slowing down process that happens in nature in the giving process, just to gain a little bit clarity and just to like have some quietness, I think is the biggest effect that I've seen. And so like, is wilderness therapy something that you can engage in outside of sort of the treatment space? Yep. So though specifically I worked at a hybrid and I did family. And so, um, I would work with a client and their family outside. And then there's always an option to come to campus and have an intensive before leaving, um, before the client would transition to the next phase. And so the interesting piece of that too, is you can see the intensity of the client doing their work in treatment and the difficulty with the parents not matching that pace um, because they get an hour a week phone call. So I say parents, I worked at, um, uh, emerging adults facility. So sometimes they were also in, you know, coupleship or in partnership. And so we would work with the partner or the couple in that. So it wasn't just family of origin that we were working with, but it was always interesting to see the different pace and just how internal whoever was on campus was able to go differently than the hour session. And it's why I love intensives. because I think it just gives some of that space that we don't naturally have in our day to day. Yeah. And living in North Carolina, living in Asheville and the mountains, um, in your private practice, are there ways that you can incorporate nature and wilderness into an outpatient setting? Absolutely. Yeah. So talk and walks are always an option. Um, Meeting other places. Like my next venture is how do we get some space to have fires and stuff like that, fire ceremonies and um, rituals. Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine like walk and talks are like really good for the bilateral stimulation and processing. That's right. Absolutely. And sometimes it also could look like because we are in the mountains, um, asking the client to do something in between their week and to, to bring that or to journal or to come, to come back to session. Some Some therapy homework. That's right. That's right. I think when we think about family systems, when we think about uh, living in even just like our larger communities, I feel like it has gotten really more divisive and more divided in the last three to four years. Um, And so I'd love to hear, are you seeing that in your practice? What does that look like as we have a lot of social and political unrest um, within families and communities. Absolutely. Yes, definitely seeing it in my practice. Um, I don't know that I have an answer or a solution for that, but it, it definitely is. I mean, I think specifically teen years are hard um, and a process. And then given mm-hmm. social media, given technology, I think it becomes more difficult. There's a little more power struggle happening in and that age group. And then I have families who are adult children who are divided um, socially 
with their family. And so really trying to navigate that and figure that out. It can be very hard to hold space for that because I think lots of times we're strong in our convictions, strong in our belief systems. And so Mm -hmm. have that more curious conversation. How did you come to be? How did you get to this? Um, line of thinking in this belief system can be really difficult, especially what the only thing I try to do in those sessions, I guess, is to come from the place of not convincing or changing, right? So this is the space to just open the conversation up. We were having a talk around this earlier in the week of like, I do think, like you said, Mackenzie, curiosity is sort of the only way forward in this and sort of there I read the coolest like news story yesterday about they asked one of the liberal justices about her relationship with Clarence Thomas and how they like get along I read that too did you read it it was so good but she basically said like even though we don't agree on sort of any of the decisions that we're making for the court like we only a couple times have we come together that they, that she sees the way that he treats everyone and she can appreciate that about him. And like, it was a reminder to me that like, there's, there's so much more deeply entrenched in these issues than, than I am. And like to be able to um, just continually look for someone's humanity and get curious about what motivates them and have a general belief that even if I don't agree with the beliefs that they hold, that the reason why they hold them a lot of times is similar to the reasons why I hold the beliefs that I do. You know, it's that I want the best for the world and that there's some personal experience that's led me in the directions that it has. And so um, it, it is so hard to continually find that grace and that curiosity and that, um, belief in others, but I think that it is like the only way we'll <laughs> kind of get through this time is the sides seem to get louder and louder. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and that's one of the things like when I think about that creating space and the curiosity is we don't have to worry about change right in this moment, but it does give us an opportunity to see heart. And so if I, if I can see your heart, I can, I can connect to something there. Hmm. I really took this to heart, and I'm going to write it down. We're done with this interview. But you said every time there's an opportunity to make a statement, there's an opportunity to ask a question. Mm. Um, And I think I want to take that into my community interactions. I want to take that into my family interactions um, and the people with whom I, like, really differ on political or social issues because it does feel so ingrained to your even identity sometimes, like we attach it to our identity. And so then it feels like it's an attack on me. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do I, instead of convincing, just create that opportunity of like, there's an opportunity for a statement. Let me ask a question. Mm -hmm. That feels really powerful. And I loved Lindsay. I read a little about that interaction as well. And she used the word of like using the good in me to find good in someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's starting with her, starting with her finding uh, the goodness within herself and her own, putting that aside, you know, I just left that. So really good. Crystal, what is something that you're learning in this season? And sort of one of the things that we kind of ask a lot of times as we wrap up is like, what's keeping you grounded? So I'd love to hear. It's a season (laughs) y'all. It is a season. So what I'm learning 
is to slow down. I don't have to control any narratives that I can continue to show up in all of my love and all of my heart um, and that people will see that. So there has been a lot of turmoil in my life recently. And so I know old me would have tried to get it all together and create some change and do things. And I've just been still and silent and um, in my own integrity. And that's been really, really amazing. I'm not great at it. So I have to fight the <laughs> urge to go in um, and bulldoze sometimes. And I think the way that I've been doing that, nature for me in the woods, in the mountains, is a place so much time, so many times driving, walking, you don't have cell service in Asheville. So it is the gift of Asheville, mm. <laughs> even when you don't want it. Um, so for me, it's creating some space sometimes. I notice in my life, when I start working too much, there's probably something I need to pay attention to. And so um, my morning practice, I definitely got away from that for a minute. And I knew like, okay, I have to bring that back, even if it's for 10 minutes in the morning. Maybe I don't have to do the full 35, but how can I incorporate something in the morning for myself? Um, and then, then for me, it's asking for help is... A difficult. Um, and sometimes it's not that anybody has to do anything, but the reach out, the can you listen to me vent? Um, am I willing to be vulnerable and kind of where I'm at and that I don't have it all figured out right now? So my community keeps me grounded and I'm so grateful for them. I love these interviews with therapists and guides because I think we can have this disillusionment that like therapists have it all together <laughs> and they have a really beautiful morning practice where they're so grounded. And so I love pulling back the curtain. Yes. Like, hey, I'm in process because we all are in process, right? No one arrives. Um, right. So thank you for sharing so vulnerably. And even going to onsite at times does create more space for myself, right? Um, yeah. In ways that at home, I can always find the busyness. I can always find the next thing to do. And at onsite, I have the work and then I actually get a little bit of time at night to connect with other guides and for us to collaborate. And it, that is the other gift of onsite is the community. Thank you so much, Crystal. This was so fun. I loved getting to know you a little more and pick your brain. It's been great. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.